A few weeks ago, a friend of mine posted a heartwarming video on her Facebook page of a massive animal shelter in Southern California that was completely empty. And this happened because for the first time in this animal shelter's history, every single animal had been adopted by a permanent family. And this is not a isolated incident. Things like this are happening all across the country right now. Actually, in Denver, Colorado, the largest animal shelter there currently has a list of over 2,000 families and individuals who are waiting to foster animals that might come into the system. And not only that, I was talking with Pastor Dave this week, and he has a son who lives over in Chicago, and he recently found a litter of kittens outside of his house and he volunteers at an animal shelter. So he brought those kittens there, and as they are preparing them to be adopted, there are over 80 different applications right now for those kittens for the moment they are ready to be adopted. You know, news stories like that are just fun and heartwarming right now. In a time where there's a lot of words that are filled with fear and pessimism, it's refreshing to hear something that is both encouraging and hopeful. It's nice to know that at least one good thing emerging from the recent events is that lots and thousands and thousands of animals have been adopted by loving families. But you know, as I stopped and thought about those statistics, as I thought about that massive uptick of people wanting to adopt animals, I began to wonder to myself, what precipitated such a huge spike in people adopting animals? As I read more and more articles, the answer became very clear. People are flocking to animal shelters right now because they are profoundly lonely. Millions of Americans right now are languishing in loneliness. They are hungry for companionship and friendship. But here's the thing. The coronavirus pandemic didn't create this loneliness. No, I I think instead it merely revealed a loneliness that been that had been hiding under the surface of our society for quite some time. In fact, a group of researchers recently labeled young adults in America the loneliest generation in history. And for a few years now, many healthcare professionals have been referring to this crisis of loneliness in our country as an epidemic of loneliness. And just listen to some of these sobering statistics that reinforce that idea. These are drawn from some major different national-wide published studies. According to one well-documented study, more than half of respondents, 54%, said that they always or sometimes feel like nobody knows them well. 56% of Americans reported that they always feel like people around them are not necessarily with them. And two out of five felt that they lacked companionship, that their relationships aren't actually meaningful, and that they feel isolated from others. Another major study found that the typical American has one close friend. One out of four Americans report that they have no close friends, no confidants. They have zero people they feel like actually know them and that they could reach out to in a moment of crisis. And the crazy thing is, the younger the respondent, the more likely they are to report feeling lonely. Even though Generation Z is the most technologically connected generation of all time, they are also the loneliest generation of all time. 
And here's the most insightful part of the research. That level of social disconnection is actually dangerous to our health. Persistent loneliness has the same impact on a person's life as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it rivals excessive drinking and risk factors on your health. So putting all of that research together, I don't think we can deny that there is an epidemic of loneliness in our culture over the last couple decades. But you know, maybe as I started to read through some of those statistics, it stung a little bit. Maybe for you, they aren't statistics, but that's your reality. You know all too well what it feels like to be alone in a crowded room, to feel surrounded by people, but to feel completely isolated. Maybe you're the one out of four who feels like there's no one who really knows you that well. You don't really have a confidant. You don't really have a close friend and you've felt the pain of that isolation. Maybe the recent change of events with the coronavirus has exposed a loneliness and a hunger for community that you didn't even know it was there because it was masked with a calendar that was filled in a life of busyness. But now that the busyness has subsided, you're left feeling alone and wanting those friendships. Maybe you look back on your college years with fond memories because you think of the friendships that you forged and how wonderful they are, but you've been out of college for quite a few years now and you think that those types of friendships are trapped in the rearview mirror because you're never going to have friends like that again. You know, if I could generate a poll that revealed the top reason that people have visited our young adults group on Monday nights over the last three years, I'm confident of what the top answer would be, to find community. The hunger for community and relationships and friendships runs deep within our culture, but a lot of people have not been able to experience it. So with that felt need in mind, the rest of our summer for third Monday worship, we are going to dive into a sermon series that's built around forging friendships. And during this four-part series, we're going to look at a different component of friendship each week. Let me give you a little forecast of where we're headed. Tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to be created for community. Then in the month of June, we're going to look at the friendship of David and Jonathan and understand what it looks like to view friendship as covenantal companionship. In July, we're going to look at Ruth and Naomi and realize that true friends stand close even through times of sorrow and suffering. And then in August, we are going to see Jesus as the greatest friend and what the greatest act of friendship is according to Scripture. I'm really excited about this series, and I hope that by the time August rolls around, we don't know more about friendship just cognitively, but rather we know more about it experientially. I hope that over the next few months, we can forge deeper friendships and understand the community that we can have in Jesus Christ. So with that forecast in mind, let's dive into tonight's topic. Our big idea for the night is simple. Here it is. We are created for community. We are created for community. Now, this truth is foundational for our understanding of biblical friendship. There is a profound theological reason that we all have a deep longing for friendship, for relationships, for community. The Bible actually teaches us why isolation and prolonged loneliness are so painful. 
But to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the very creation of mankind. So open up your Bibles to pretty much the first page to Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little overview. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we see the record of the creation narrative. In Genesis 1, we get a summary snapshot of God's creative work over the six days of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we get a more detailed account of God's specific and unique creation of mankind, Adam and Eve. And as we read through Genesis 1, you'll see a common pattern emerge in the summary account. Each day, God creates all the amazing and diverse aspects of the universe by just speaking them into existence. He creates them ex nihilo, out of nothing. And at the end of the day, as God looks out over all of his creation, he sees that his creation is good. And then on the sixth day, we learn that he creates humanity in a very special way that sets humanity apart from the rest of his creation. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at verses 26 and 27 to see what makes humanity so unique within God's creative work. Here's what the verses say. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, these verses and the following verses are filled with profound theological and anthropological implications. Doctrines like the sanctity of life, roles within marriage, our stewardship of creation all find their grounding in these verses. And we could literally spend weeks mining out all the different facets of what these verses mean for uh, our, our understanding of creation, our understanding of God, and our understanding of ourselves. But for tonight, I want to hone in on one particular facet— I want us to see that we are created in the image of God and I want us to have a deeper understanding of the God whose image we have been created in. Look back at verse 26 and notice what God says. He says, let me make man in my image. Except he doesn't say that, does he? That's what we would expect him to say. But notice what God actually says. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Notice the pronouns there. They are important. They're not singular, but they are plural. God says, our image, our likeness. What does that teach us? What teaches us from the very beginning of scripture, we get a glimpse of God's complex Trinitarian nature. And as scripture teases that idea out further, we learn that God is one God who eternally coexists as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And though the doctrine of the Trinity is both complex and really to an extent incomprehensible by our finite brains, it provides us with the foundation for understanding friendship. And here it is. We are created in the image and the likeness of a relational and communal God. 
For all of eternity, God has enjoyed the bonds of friendship and love perfectly within himself. There has never been a point in history when God has been truly alone. Perfect fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has existed from eternity past, which means that friendship is woven into the very nature of God himself. And we are created in his image and his likeness. Now, there are countless implications of the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God. But a hugely important one is this. We are created for community. We're hardwired for friendship because we're created in the image of a relational God. The reason we have a hunger for friendship and community is because that is one of the ways that we reflect the image of the God we have been designed after. And it's only with that understanding that we can make sense of what later happens in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, the narrative returns to the creation of humanity and gives us a more detailed account of the events that lead up to the creation of Adam and Eve. So after God creates Adam, he creates a place for Adam to live. He creates the Garden of Eden and puts Adam there to cultivate it, to care for it, to develop it. And after he places Adam there, notice what God says in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. This is a really important verse. He says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, as you learn the different tools of studying the Bible, one of the things you look for in a passage is the importance of repeated words that kind of clues you in to the important theme that's going on in a chapter. Now remember, in Genesis 1, we read seven times that God looks over his creation and what does he say? It is good. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we read something that is not good. When we come across that word, our interpretation senses should be tingling. This is the first time that God has identified something in his creation that is not yet good, that is not yet complete, that is not yet perfected. And notice what it is. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. Since Adam was created in the image of a relational and communal God, there is something not good and actually unhuman about existing in complete isolation and solitude. Now, just realize how radical this is for God to say. Just consider where Adam is when God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Adam is living in literal paradise. He is in the Garden of Eden that God has planted just for him. Adam is enjoying the garden. He's enjoying all of the animals. He has a perfect relationship with creation. Not only that, he has unrestricted access to God's presence every day. He has perfect communion with God. His life was free of the burdens and pain that comes from living under the curse. His work at this point was unimpeded by thorns and thistles. His body was at peak performance and he had no sin, no sickness or pain to plague him. And yet, God says, there's still something missing. Adam was designed for friendship and community with other human beings. And without that, his life would be not good. 
As one pastor wisely put it, God designed us in such a way that we are unable to enjoy even paradise without friends. You know, and I think a lot of us know this to be true experientially. If I could go out to coffee with all of you this week, and I could sit down and just ask you about some of your favorite memories, I'm sure that as you started to recount some of those memories, they would be centered on the people that they were made with. I know that's true in my own life. I know that to be true experientially. Uh, In my own life, some of my favorite memories center on some of my deepest friendships. I think of snowshoeing in the Rockies with the Hardy Boys. Uh, I went on a mission trip with a missionary named Ron Hardy and a bunch, there was a few other young guys who went with him and he called us affectionately the Hardy Boys. So a few years later, we took a trip to reunite out to the, the Rockies and we spent some time snowshoeing and just hanging out for a weekend. I love that memory. I think of road tripping to the Grand Canyon to hike around with my good friends, Sam and, and Joe. I think of my wedding day surrounded by my eight closest guy friends and getting to marry my best friend. I look back on that day with such fond joy and memories. I think of staying up way too late in the dorms at Cedarville to play another round of Settlers of Catan with all of my friends because we were total nerds and we didn't care. And we stayed up till two in the morning to do that probably way too often. I think about spending a few days in New York traveling to all the different boroughs to check out the best coffee shops in each one and write reviews with my coffee snob friend Colin and how much fun that was. I love those memories. But more importantly, I love those people. And those memories wouldn't matter near as much if those people weren't there. Catch this. God has designed friendship as something that amplifies our enjoyment of life. God has created friendship as something that amplifies our enjoyment of life. So let's synthesize those ideas together with our first principle for tonight. Principle number one, we are designed to be known, not alone. We are designed to be known, not alone. Every single person, God is designed to be known and not alone. Whether you're outgoing or shy or extroverted or introverted, regardless, you are hardwired for friendship. Just think about this way. According to these passages, what is the first problem that ever shows up in God's creation? Now, if we were to answer that question, a lot of us would jump right to Genesis 3 and say sin is the first problem. But actually, we see sin's not the first problem. Solitude is the first problem. Solitude was problematic before sin had entered into creation and plagued every last square inch of God's universe. The first thing that God declares not to be good is solitude and isolation. He knows that we have been designed to be known and to know others. So when you read it's not good for man to be alone, you should place your name into that, into that line. It's not good for blank to be alone. It's not good for Andrew to be alone. So how did God respond to Adam's aloneness? What was his solution to the universe's first problem? Well, God creates the first woman, Eve, and brings her to Adam. God solves the problem of aloneness by bringing Adam a friend, a companion, a helper, and a wife. And ultimately through Eve, a world of community could begin to emerge. So Eve was the answer to Adam's problem of solitude in two ways. 
First of all, in marriage, she was Adam's nearest companion, best friend, and she helped lift Adam out of the sadness of solitude. But second of all, God designed marriage in such a way that it would be the mechanism to continue to populate the earth. Through Eve, humanity was able to multiply and community was brought to God's creation. So in summary, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God created us for community. Forging friendships is a crucial way that we actually image the likeness of God. And that brings us to a second principle that we can glean from our verses tonight. Here's our second principle. We need to cultivate our image. We need to cultivate our image. Here's what I mean by that. If we are created in the image of a relational, communal God, then we need to prioritize people, friendships, and relationships. And the more we prioritize those people, friendships, and relationships, the more we actually look like God himself. Or to say it another way, the less we care about people and relationships and friendships, the, the less we look like God. To not care about others is inherently ungodly. Now, disclaimer at this point. I'm not saying that extroverts are inherently more like God. This is not evidence that Jesus was an ENFJ personality type on the Myers-Briggs. I'm sorry that that's not what I'm saying. So all of you extroverts who are just cheering, uh, slow down a little bit. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about people who are outgoing or the quantity of interactions a person might have with others. I'm talking about the need for deep, meaningful connections with other people. And to be honest, I think there's actually a lot of introverts who do that far better than a lot of us extroverts. There's principle is talking about living in a way that prioritizes people over programs. A life that prioritizes community over isolation. A life that prioritizes other people over myself. Realize that we cannot live out the second greatest commandment to love others as ourselves without other people. We can't live out the second commandment in in solitude. The only way to love others is to engage others, to befriend others, and to build relationships with others. So here's my last question of the night. What's holding us back from doing that? What is holding us back from loving others well? More specifically, what's holding us back from being the friends that we know we ought to be? I think there's a lot of different answers to that question, but there are four obstacles to friendship tonight that I just want to briefly hit on. This is not exhaustive. There's many others, but these are four things that I think are friendship killers that we see in our community all the time. And that brings us to our third principle. Principle number three, we need to overcome these obstacles to friendship. We need to make sure that we are not allowing these things to go unconfronted in our lives, killing our friendship. I think a lot of us agree that we're created for community. We long for friendships and relationships. So why does friendship feel so elusive? Why does community sometimes feel so out of reach? Why is there an epidemic of loneliness? I don't pretend to have all the answers to that question, but I do think that these four common barriers, these four common friendship killers are holding a lot of us back from experiencing friendship as God designed us to. Remember the title of our series for the summer. 
forging friendship. I chose the word forging for a very specific reason. The word forging conjures up the idea of something that takes time, perseverance, and hard work. Deep friendships are not easily made or made in a day, but they are always worth the investment. So let's overcome these common obstacles and barriers to friendship. So let's consider the first one. Here's the first one. Obstacle number one to friendship. Tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow never comes. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in a culture of busyness. And if we're being honest, we are really quick to put off our friendships until tomorrow. But the reality is tomorrow rarely comes. Here's maybe what that looks like. One of your friend texts you to connect for coffee this weekend, but you look at your calendar and, ah, man, it's kind of full. You've got places to go. You've got projects to work on. And let's be honest, it was a rough week and you just want a little you time. So you text the friend back and say, hey, how about a rain check? And we do this when it's a little bit more convenient. But here you are weeks later, a convenient time never materialized and the friend is still waiting for that opportunity to connect for coffee. Or maybe there's another couple that's been wanting to get together for a double date for some time. And you know, it sounds like a lot of fun, but then you think of the hassle, you know, first of all, you'd have to get a babysitter. Then you'd have to find a night that hasn't already been taken up by sports or a house project or bringing home work with you because you've been working late into the night. And you think, wow, this is just not a convenient season of time to have friends. So you tell them, hey, maybe we can do this a little bit further down the line when life just gets a little less busy. Flash forward six years later and life is still busy and you still are not going out on that double date. Maybe you see that you're getting a call from a friend, but for one reason or another, you think, oh man, this is an inconvenient time and this is probably going to be a long call. So you double click and you decline it and you think, you know, I'll call them back this weekend while I have a little bit more time. The weekend comes and goes and you never respond to the call and here you are and many of those calls go unanswered and your friends are just kind of left hanging. Or maybe a good friend of yours moved away a few years ago and you said, once you get settled, I'm gonna go down and visit you. And you've talked about it a few times, but you just never seem to make the, make the arrangements. And here you are and the years come and gone. And you think, oh, you know, there's always next year and just kick the can down the road. Or perhaps you see a friend at church and enjoy catching up after the service and you tell your friend, hey, we're gonna to have to have you over for lunch. But by the time you get home, It's far from your mind, you forget. And here you are a year later when you bump into them, you're still saying, hey, hey, we'll have to get lunch soon. We'll we'll do it soon. We live in an era where busyness is worn like a badge of honor. We love to give off the air of we're busy because somehow it makes us feel important. But you know, I think one of the things that the COVID-19 crisis has revealed is that we don't have to be as busy as sometimes we pretend to be. Because the problem is in our busyness, a lot of the times we are not intentional about prioritizing time with people and with friends. We allow work, sports, hobbies, entertainment, friends, or all of those things to overtake that place of friendship in our lives. We allow all those other distractions to muscle out any room we might have for other people. We're always putting off time with friends until tomorrow, but then tomorrow never comes. You know, this idea is illustrated well by a gal named Bonnie Ware. I I read about this in a book. Um, She was a palliative nurse for many years. And a few years ago, she wrote an insightful article describing the five most common regrets of people who were dying. And here's one of the regrets. 
I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Here's what she wrote. Often, these people would never truly realize the full benefit of old friends until their dying weeks. And then, it wasn't always possible to track them down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they had let golden friendships slip through their fingers over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendship the time and effort they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they're dying. Don't regret letting golden friendships slip by. Don't put off your friendships until tomorrow, knowing that tomorrow rarely comes. Make sure that you are intentional about being a good friend today. So this week, who can you call on your way home from work just to catch up with? Who can you arrange a time just to hike up Rib Mountain with and catch up with this weekend? Who can you text tonight and just ask, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Who's that couple that you've been wanting to have over? Reach out to them and make the plans and commit and find the time to have them over. Act today because tomorrow just always seems to never come. Here's a second barrier to friendship. We are tied to technology. We're tied to technology. Now, I'm not saying that technology is inherently bad or inherently antisocial. In fact, We've recently seen the amazing ways that technology has helped bridge the gap as we've been trapped in kind of uh, staying at home and in isolation. It has helped us be able to connect. I think back over the last few weeks where I had a Zoom game night with great friends from college and we had a a Zoom game night with uh, my in-laws and my parents and we were able to do that even though they live in Ohio and California. And that, that was just awesome. That was great. Technology helped foster those relationships. However, technology also has the potential to be a barrier and to harm friendships when misused. I think there are a lot of ways that we regularly misuse technology in our world. One of the ways I think a lot of us have replaced true friendship with Facebook friends. Social media gives us the illusion of connection, but oftentimes it leaves us feeling even lonelier. Even though we have a thousand friends, how many people do we actually know well? Instead of picking up the phone and connecting with people personally, we just read a status and and feel content that we know what's going on in their lives. And it leaves us feeling more disconnected than connected. I think another way that technology can harm friendships is that we are far quicker to say things quickly that we would regret using social media and digital communications. Uh, In the Proverbs, it says that a whisper can separate close friends I would also say this, an ill-advised Facebook post can separate good friends. We live in a time where we are far quicker to say things that are harsh or cynical or mean that we'd never say to another person, but we throw it out there on a digital platform that causes friendships to be harmed. You know, we can also use technology as a time filler that can keep us from engaging the other people around us. Just go to a coffee shop or go to a place where people are waiting What do we see? Not a lot of people engaging with others, but we see phones out and earbuds in and basically a big bubble that says, don't bother me. I want to be alone right now. We aren't sometimes actually present with our friends when we're actually there. How many of us have known the off-putting feeling of a friend who's constantly interrupted in conversation by responding to a text, by taking an email, by taking a phone call? And even though we're there, we're not really present with each other because we're all glued to our devices. 
How many of us over a holiday, we're all sitting together with our family members, but there's no conversation going on because everyone's on their mobile device. Or we pass up times with friends on the weekend because we've grown so comfortable of just staying in on the weekends and thinking, you know, I just kind of want to have a me night watching Netflix or watching movies. And I really don't want to go out and put in the work of being social. And then sometimes we wonder why we feel alone and isolated. We need to make sure that we are not too tied to technology. We need to be willing to put down the phone and look people in the eyes. We need to make sure that maybe next time we hang out with a friend, we leave leave the phone in the car and we give them our undistracted attention. Or maybe it's a little less just time at home on the couch on the weekends, a little more, who can I call to go on a hike with? Who can I go disc golfing with? Who can we invite over for a meal? And prioritizing that face-to-face time. Here's a third obstacle. A lot of us feel the pressure to have a photoshopped life. We live in a time where everybody only gets to see the highlight reel. If you were to look at someone's Instagram feed, you'd think that they're living the perfect life. And a lot of people feel the pressure to show that they have everything all together, that their life is perfect. But the reality is it's photoshopped. It's not real. And the problem with that is true friendship relies on vulnerability and being known. You can't be known when you're always trying to make sure that you are giving off a persona that you want people to believe about yourself. If you're always feeling like you have to keep up the the facade and keep up the the attitude and and give off this certain persona, it's exhausting. And you're never going to experience true friendship because everything's going to be shallow. Those are going to be shallow acquaintances and not true friendship. We have to be okay with being a little vulnerable. We have to be okay to being, with being known. That's, uh, we can either not be known and feel isolated or we can take the risk of letting people in and being known and, and finding true friendship. And here's a fourth barrier, obstacle to friendship. We're waiting on the world to change. We want everybody to be the first person to make the move and engage friendship with us. I have talked with countless young adults that say, I just, I, I want more friends. I want to be more social. I want more social engagement. And they'll say, well, who are you trying to build a friendship with? And they'll say, well, no one. And I say, well, what are you waiting on? Well, I'm waiting on them to come to me. We're all waiting on the world to change. We're all waiting on the other person to make the first move. Here's a great piece of advice for all of us to live by. Be the friend you wish you had. Be the friend to others that you wish you had. And guess what? pretty soon after you'll find yourselves with real friends. A lot of us need to stop waiting and saying, man, I just want this other person to reach out and befriend me. I I want them to call me. I want them to text me. I want them to make plans and just take that initiative to say, who can I befriend? How can I go out and try to strive after those friendships? Who can I call? Who can I engage? Who can I encourage? How can I cultivate community? So those are just four obstacles that we need to overcome. There's probably more, but I just encourage you this week, think of one tangible thing that you can do to be the friend that you wish you had. We are created for community. We are in a culture that has an epidemic of loneliness and we as Christ followers should exemplify what forging friendships actually looks like. So this week, How can you be a better friend? I'm excited to continue this journey over the next few months of looking what friendship actually is. So thank you so much for joining in with us tonight. Let me close us in a word of prayer. 
Father, we are so grateful that we are created in your amazing image, that you gave us the, that gift, that dignity, that worth, that special relationship with you. But not only with you, you've created us in such a way that we are designed to have relationships and friendships with other people as well. So Father, I just pray that you help us to be good friends. Help us to live out the first and greatest commandment to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also help us to live out the second commandment of loving other people as ourselves and being true friends. Father, I just pray that you help alleviate the epidemic of loneliness. Help people who are longing for community to find it in Christ, to find a Christian community. And Father, help people to see something special in your people about the way that they love and relate to one another that draws them to a deeper desire to know Christ. We love you. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.